A few months after my father passed away from stage 4 CTE in February 2019, I told my wife I wanted to remove every final vestige of my past experiences with football from our home. I'd already gotten rid of 99% of this stuff anyway, but the remaining 1% needed to go too. I had attempted to do this several times before for other reasons, but she would have nothing of it. See, she thinks this is a big deal and she looks at it the same way many other people do. She was incredulous that someone would achieve something so few other people do and then want to rid themselves of all reminders of it. You see, the fog of the affliction had even descended in some ways around her through no fault of her own. What do you expect? She went to the same football-addicted school as me, and even though her family had nothing to do with football, living and going to school in a state that worships the golden idol every fall, eventually has an impact. The affliction steals its way into your daily life. This idol worship in the fall is literally part of the fabric of our society and it's hard, if not impossible, to escape it. And she is still even now, incredulous about my feelings. There really wasn't much football detritus left anyway. One of my college jerseys she had framed years ago for a Father's Day present that I insisted be kept out of sight in the public areas of our house, ensconced as it were in my office library. A few old, black and white, 8x10 photographs of me from an old media guide, and of course, my old college helmet that at her choice has sat out of place with everything else atop a cabinet in our living room since we moved into the house in 2012. A helmet, I might add, that didn't prevent me from suffering two concussions myself, at least the two concussions I know of. I just want it all gone. You really want me to throw it out? She asks incredulously. Because I'm not doing that. You'll have to do that yourself. We can put it all up in the attic and you can get rid of it when you have more time to consider it. See, my wife is like this. She is always the sage advisor, the one who suggests a cooling off period before making any decision or taking any action a person might later regret. 
because she knows better than anyone that when I make a decision, that's it. There is no second guessing or coming back on it. When my mind is made up, it's made up. There is no looking back. And so to respect her feelings, the stuff that's left now sits up in the attic in a hideously warped cardboard moving box next to the two big footlockers containing my gear from Marine Corps deployments overseas, the stuff I actually value. It's far more likely that I will go into those footlockers of military gear than I ever will the old remnants of my football career. Because the reality is, the only reason the football stuff is still up there is to placate her for a time. I know as sure as the sun appears on the eastern horizon each morning that it's not going to be up there for very long. It's just a matter of time, and when the time is right, it'll be gone. I want it gone first because it's ancient history an enabling material for some folks who just can't have a conversation without mentioning it and who insist on labeling me for something I quit doing 30 years ago. But secondly and most importantly, it's a constant reminder of something much bigger, something our family has only recently come to grips with over the past few months, what the game took from all of us. I'm providing this account for anyone who cares to hear it. At times, football on the college and professional levels anyway appears to be bigger than ever, and I'm under no illusions that anything I have to say about how the game in many ways ruined my father's life and afflicted our family for decades will have any effect whatsoever on those hungry masses who continue to fuel it. I'm reminded in this of those helicopters in the original Independence Day movie when they try vainly to bring down one of the alien motherships, Their missiles harmlessly bounce off the force field. The only difference here is I'm not trying to bring down the mothership. That's not my target. You see, I was trained by the best military professionals on the planet that sometimes you can defeat a much larger enemy, not by directly attacking it, but by subverting its grip on the populace, by winning their hearts and minds a sort of intellectual insurgency, as it were. And I know slowly but surely, this movement is making progress where it matters. You see, this is the long game. And the sport I'm talking about here is going to lose, eventually. Slowly and eventually, it will lose. It already is losing, as fewer and fewer boys go into football. Football and all its formulations, the NFL, the NCAA, even high school football, is an inanimate, monolithic object that doesn't listen to anything or anyone. And its refusal to do so is emboldened and buttressed by the millions of apologists who, despite the overwhelming emerging medical science, still continue to follow it like unthinking automatons. No, my target here are people who are open-minded, whatever their opinion of football might be.
On opening day of college football season in 2015, I wrote an op-ed piece that wasn't intended for anyone outside the small circle of friends and other fledgling writers who had started following my first efforts. At the time, I was in Blacksburg, Virginia with my wife, and we were spending the weekend with our oldest son who was just starting his sophomore year at Virginia Tech. It was early Saturday morning, and we had just sat down in the Continental Divide Lounge inside the inn at Virginia Tech to have breakfast when someone turned on a big screen television and we were suddenly hit with the cacophony of ESPN's College Game Day. Today, over five years out from Sports Illustrated publishing the original piece, if there's one single sentence in that story I would change, it would be this one, quote, football was good to my father and me, no question about it, unquote. I've subsequently realized that I said that because I was speaking to a certain audience whose lives have been spent invested in the game, deeply invested such that the prospect of them extricating themselves from that investment seems impossible to them. But I'm well beyond that now. If I had it to do all over again, that sentence would be changed to, quote, Some would say football was good to my father and me, but with decades of hindsight I would disagree. The toll it took on his life, not just in physical terms, and the resultant impact it has had on our family over many years is just too high a price when compared to the brief and fleeting benefits it may have provided. In the Sports Illustrated article, I said I wasn't speaking for my father, although he already at that point was suffering from serious cognitive dysfunction, which only worsened over the last three years of his life. The SI piece was predominantly my own personal story about the way playing football from childhood through Division I in the NCAA affected me and the questions I still harbor about the long-term effects. The editors at Sports Illustrated actually toned it down what I had originally written because, as one of them told me, it's just too much truth for a lot of people. But someday, I will write my father's story, which by implication is our family's story. And it's not going to be the kind of thing people invested in football are going to like. His old friends from college who've made the investment I speak of won't like it. Undoubtedly, some people in our extended family will not like it. Most football fans in his home state will certainly not like it. The state's sports media, some of the worst Homer journalists in the country, will be sure to ignore it, just like they ignored our family when researching and writing their obligatory stories on my father's passing, yet at the same time interviewed other people who sat in the same room with us near the very end. Yes, there is indeed something very insidious in this football thing, especially in places where the game is the proverbial sacred cow, untouchable by any critical voices. Of the people who are too deeply invested in the game of football, they won't like my story because they live in an echo chamber. They only want to hear what they want to hear. Unfortunately, the game has been their life to the exclusion of most anything else. They are too heavily invested at this point 
to change their views. I witnessed the virulence of how this affliction can play out on all sides when my father was inducted into the Southwest Conference Sports Hall of Fame a few years ago in October 2018. Since my father was in no condition to make any public appearances at that point, let alone give any kind of speech, he would pass away only four months later. My brother accepted on his behalf and read a letter that was purportedly written by my father. I say purportedly because knowing his condition, I don't know if my father wrote the letter or not. Although the sentiments expressed sounded like him, but as I watched and listened to my brother over the live feed from a distance of 1,200 miles, the comforting distance, I was fascinated by the gist of the letter when compared to the reality of our family's life over many years. It simply told the assembled audience what they wanted to hear. It was plain to the audience. Dad, or whoever actually wrote that letter, was taking the high road on that day. There was no mention in the letter of what his life had recently been or was currently like for him and his family as a result of his days playing football and hitting his head on every offensive play. His old helmets are rutted with deep scars and grooves from front to back, mainly up and over the forehead and crown, as if a massive polar bear had used them as toys and drug steel claws across the front and top of the helmets from front to back over and over again. There was no mention in the letter of his various medical diagnoses, the import of what those diagnoses meant as our family moved forward and what our family feared at the time. No mention of the fact that he had quietly donated his brain for post-mortem examination at the Boston University CTE Research Center. There was no mention of these things in the letter because people back there don't want to hear about any of these things. Football fans don't want to hear about it, and they certainly don't want to talk about it. A friend once suggested I should write a book about my father, but I don't think the book I'm going to write is what my friend envisioned. No, someday I will write the other side of the story. It's going to be a son's perspective of what it was like to grow up with a father who was afflicted from his days playing the sport of football. An affliction that we suspect had already begun to manifest itself going back to when my father was still a young man. My brother went off script in the aforementioned acceptance speech to talk for a few minutes about this, how great a father our dad was. But of course, because of the audience's football-only interests, it was very clear it was neither the time nor the place for my brother to go down that road, although I was very proud that he did. But in my story, I will pick up from where my brother left off, and it's not all going to be pretty. The other side of the story, the one nobody in football circles wants to hear, starts as far back when my father was in his early 30s, and I will continue to tell it even if some people refuse 
to acknowledge it. Shortly after he retired from the NFL in 1975 at the age of 32, Dad began to show some early symptoms that have become all too familiar to other football players and their families. When he was diagnosed many years later with serious neurological disease and probable chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, these symptoms started to make sense in hindsight, but at the time, our family had no idea what to make of them. Am I being too general for you? Well, then let me be very specific. He was reclusive. He was always writing things down in notebooks, which he had countless numbers of around the house that he would keep long after they were completely filled up. We didn't know why. He experienced sudden fits of anger that seemed to be way out of proportion to the precipitating cause. He would close himself off from people. He went through dark moods that made him unapproachable. He had difficulty maintaining a job, although he was offered numerous opportunities. His explanation at the time was that the jobs took too much time away from being able to spend time with his family. But we suspected there were other issues at play that made it very difficult for him to maintain steady employment. He avoided attending any functions that required him to speak publicly, and he didn't often attend reunions of his football teams. He hated crowds, and they made him nervous. People concluded he was aloof, standoffish, and even arrogant, but they had no idea what was really going on. He also suffered from an acute, palpable depression that no one could understand, least of all him. It debilitated him, and in turn it debilitated our family. Our fellow football families who've been through these same experiences can understand this and how this insidious affliction affects not only our loved one, our father, our brother, our son, who played the game, but it also leaves a wide path of damage in its wake that impacts everyone who loves and cares about them. Back when this started to manifest itself, Dad even wrote letters to his children, attempting to explain what he was going through. I can't explain what exactly happened to me, he would write. And the details of the letters are not important here. The point is, he was still a relatively young man when he wrote these letters, but he knew there was something wrong. The real miracle of our father during these years is how different the disease manifested itself in him than it does with many other former players. He was never violent or destructive. He never laid a finger on anyone. He just bottled it all up inside. He was so strong he was somehow able to hide much of this and keep it under control for the most part, to live with it while at the same time knowing he had some kind of strange affliction that he couldn't understand.
This is why during his last days, most of his friends expressed shock that he had taken such a rapid physical and mental crash that he was in hospice care within the span of about two weeks. None of them had any idea how bad his condition was, nor how long it had existed. Later in life, his physical and cognitive decline became more rapid and advanced, and he was eventually diagnosed with advanced dementia that his doctors found resulted from his football career. He decided to donate his brain for analysis to the Boston University CTE Center. Almost one year after his death, in January 2020, the Boston University CTE Center diagnosed him with stage 4 of 4 CTE, the most advanced and severe form of the disease. There was global spread, as the doctors called it, of the disease to every part of his brain and even in deeper parts of the brain, rarely observed in other cases. Of course, 30 years ago, we didn't know anything about CTE. When you're a kid, you don't understand most things that happen around you. Events happen and you do your best to accept them and go on. If you're a resilient kid, as I was, you file things away and maybe come back to them if necessary. But as I got older, I gained new insight and perspective into events and incidents that used to seem random and isolated. Things that came out of the blue for no apparent reason and things that were way out of proportion to whatever the real or perceived precipitating factor was things that go back to when I was about nine years old. Things that if I ever told them to outsiders, they wouldn't believe it. Things that, after they happened, got sort of sealed up in some recess of our minds, never to be brought out, discussed, or revisited, because on the whole, they seemed rare and isolated. After all these years, I now know these were not random, isolated events, but a consistent pattern, all traced back to a single source and cause, repetitive head trauma and brain injury, brain damage. You see, my father was a gentle giant. His teammates, his friends, all of them, told us that much at the hospice and at the memorial service, and that's what they've always said about him. This was his nature, the genetic predisposition he was born with. But football did something to him. None of these things were in his genealogy on either side of his family. It was not an inherited condition. It was caused by one thing. The cause was football. The machine that is the football industry and the culture that feeds, fuels, and enables it. This is Glenn Hines. Each episode of the Welcome to the Machine podcast is simultaneously published on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Kindle, and Medium.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>